0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. The author of James begins his letter by saying, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance is a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete needing nothing my friends we gather this morning for a time of worship in a day and an age when our faith seems to be daily tested in so many different ways whether it be blizzards and ice or faith and politics or family or anything and everything under the Sun and so today I invite you to just leave your burdens at the door and if you came in with them and brought them to your seats As we stand to sing this morning, I invite you to go ahead and walk out and walk back in if that's what you need to do. Um, But to just be at peace this morning, um, be at rest as we worship our Lord and our God who loved us enough to send his son for us. We are one church meeting in two locations. Our mission and vision is to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. It's why we exist. Um, We are in our third week in our series on James, a faith that works, and today we're going to be talking about our favorite sin because um, everyone likes talking about <laughs> sin. It's one of our favorite three-letter words. But today we're going to be talking about a favorite sin. And James, we we've looked at this this idea of trials in our lives and what this whole epistle is about. This letter is about having a genuine faith, a faith that works in the real world. And 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 James is not bashful and and just hitting the nail on the head when it comes to the realities of real life and what it means to have faith in the real world. And James continues to push buttons as he gives a scenario in the second chapter in the church. And let's just say he, he, he kind of calls out a couple of ushers and greeters in the church and how they respond to some people that come into the church. Um, Maybe not in a very good way. Um, and then he calls them out for sinning or, or for not acting the way God would have them act. Because we don't like to use that word anymore. And so we're going to talk about our favorite sin um, or the favorite sin today as James would have it and connect it to Christ's teaching. This is actually the second and final teaching in the letter of James where he talks about something that Jesus teaches, which is why a lot of um, scholarship didn't like the book of James, because he doesn't talk about Christ very much. Um, but this is the second and final time that, uh, that the author talks and references Christ, and so we'll be looking at a little bit of Jesus teaching today as well. So I'm excited, as you know, because I love James. Um, and so we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But before we do, let's take a moment to pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be in your house, to be in a place where we can freely worship you. God, we ask that you would just come into this space, let your Holy Spirit descend on us to to be present with us, to work and move in our hearts and our minds and all of our being so that we would come to experience you in a new and unique way, that we would be moved by you and transformed by you. Through the words, through your word, through the music, through the through the breath of your spirit, Lord, that we would come to experience you. Transform us from the inside out, Lord. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, may they be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I've always enjoyed being everybody's favorite person. I'm glad one person in the room laughed, I really am. My mother um, always enjoyed me the best out of all of my brothers, um, but I am the baby, you know, and so being the favorite in the family is, is, is a hard thing to be, um, it really is. But, um, you know, the oldest in the family is always the perfect child until the baby is born. Um, But, you know, after that point, it's just the cross I bared, you know. Come on, people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, they didn't want me to get a big head, you see, is what it is. No. My kids ask me, though, Daddy, who's your favorite? Yeah. Who's your favorite, Daddy? And I say, well, you know who it is. I love all my kids, but I love them differently. Um, but there's, you know, there's a joy of being the favorite. You know, there's, when we, our, our favoritism changes and shifts as, as, as our life changes. You know, there's the firstborn. It's our favorite child until we have another baby, and then maybe it's not. Um, and then there's your only daughter, and then that's your favorite daughter until you have another daughter, and then you don't know what to do. Um, or your only son, or you don't have a son, or your only child, or, or your first car is your favorite car, unless you don't like your car, but then you're just glad to have a car. And, but it feels good to be picked first. I remember when I was a kid in school, and, and there were times when I was picked first. But then there were times I wasn't picked first, and I didn't like that as much. Um, there were times I was, I was picked in the middle, I don't know if if things are the same in school anymore, but um, when I was a kid, um, we would play sports in school, and we would have recess all the way to like sixth grade because I went to a K-6 school. And so we would go out. The the little kids went on the front playground. The big kids went on the back playground. And we would have teams, and and you would would choose the two best players to be captains. Does this sound familiar? And then the captains got to pick the team. And whoever was like the, the best players or the best friends, one or the other, would be the first picked. And then if you were the first picked, you got to help choose the rest of the team. You'd be like, okay, pick Bobby, pick Bobby. You got to have Bobby, right? And, and, and so you got to help pick the teams and you'd pick the two sides of the teams. And, and what you wanted to be is the, either that best friend, so you got preferential treatment, or you wanted to be the best player that you got picked second. Because it was always the best friend that got picked first and then it was the best player that got picked second. And so if you're the tall kid when you're playing basketball, you would just stand there like, yeah i know i don't have to worry about it i'm gonna get picked or if it was kickball man we had some hardcore kickball games out there at pw but you know we all went to school late at pw so we could play football <laughs> except for me i was in band but that's beside the point <sighs> love being the favorite love being the favorite hated being picked last i was on the quiz bowl team once i got one point the entire season and the only reason i got to play is everyone got sick hated being picked last but there was a girl i liked who was on the team so i was reading an article a while back about indirect and inadvertent racism i know it's a big jump but just bear with me for a minute um, and it was, it was about the unintended ways that um, we segregate ourselves. And the premise of this was that it was talking about um, being, being a white male. This, this spoke to me. But um, um, the unintended ways we segregate ourselves, it was talking about the social networks that, that, that white males put themselves in when, when applying for jobs. And it was, it was talking about how um, white men create social network groups for themselves. They have clubs and organizations. They have, they, and they have throughout the last 50 or 60 years, there's, there's elk clubs, and then there's the, the masons, and there's the, and there's these, these social groups. There's the rotary, and there's, there's church groups that are based on likeness of mind and character and, and, and things. And, and, and you'll have these, these groups within a community that base around like-minded individuals. And you'll find when you go into a community that you'll find the same racial demographic in those groups, like in a church. Even in the United Methodist Church, when you look at it, um, and even in our conference, there are white churches and black churches, and there are very few mixed-race United Methodist churches. Which doesn't surprise us, because you can have a a mixed-race church if it has one culture, But as soon as you start mixing cultures, things get a little dicey. There's one church in Lansing that's doing it very well, um, but they're working really hard at it, and they have been for years. And and I know one of the pastors there and just amazing ministries they're doing there. Um, But at any rate, that's another story. Point of the article was, when you go to get a job, what I was taught as a kid, it's not what you know. What is it? It's who you know, right? It's who you know. Um, And I was thinking back to my my youth and and the jobs that I've had in the past, and the organizations that I've gotten involved in, and you know, how many times have I been offered a job or been in a network where I've been connected with somebody because I knew someone or I was the favorite? I thought about my first corporate job or my first uh, my first technical job where I worked in electronics. And I got the job because I took my dad's class at Heartlands in Ionia in electronics. And the company called the school looking for electronics professionals. And they called my dad, who then posted the job in his class, who then he said, hey, Tim, this is a really good opportunity. You should apply. And my name happens to be the same last name as my dad's. And so I got the job out of everyone in my class. feels good to be the favorite. You get the job, and you know the right people. Everyone's one step removed type of a thing. You know, this is the way my family raised me. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But what about everybody else? What about a close friend of mine? was highly highly qualified in his current workplace, but didn't get the promotion because he wasn't a part of the family that owned the business. And the second cousin, twice removed, who had no experience, got the management job. What about the person who didn't get the raise because they weren't on the golf league? What about the not-so-good candidate who wasn't in the good old boys club. Because let's be honest, that still happens, doesn't it? It, 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 it still happens. It's, it's not like that's gone away. Like, we, we want to pretend it has. Like, we have equal opportunities and all that stuff. That'd be great and all, but it's not, that's not happened. You see, we like favoritism when it swings our way. We like it when it happens to us. But in all honesty, we despise it. When we fall victim to it, we hate it with the passion of a thousand burning suns, as I used to say. I heard it with the passion of a thousand burning suns. I don't even know what that means, but I used to say it all the time. More importantly, though, as Christ followers and as a church, as a church, as a people of God, as the body of Christ, how does favoritism impact us in our mission, our mission and vision to connect people with the body of Christ? with the love and life of Jesus Christ here in St. John's. And that's where we're going to go today. That's where we need to dig deep. And that's where James takes us in chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you show favor you favor some people over others. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Can you be a follower of Jesus Christ if you show favoritism? It's a good question. Can you or can't you? And it's important that we uh, actually ask this question because our, you know, our livelihood as people of faith actually really depends on this because I'll be honest with you, I show favoritism all the time. All the time. I have my favorite people that I like to hang out with. I have my not-so-favorite people that I choose not to be around all the time. Not just at home. At church, too. Don't worry, it's not you. They didn't make it to church today. Wink, wink. So in the Greek, as we all like to speak Greek, the word favor that's translated also means partiality. And partiality literally means, if we were talking a literal translation, it means to recognize somebody by their face. So to see someone by their face. And So I don't know if you have an iPhone. I have an iPhone 10. And an iPhone 10 has face recognition. Does anyone else have face recognition on their phone? Okay, so face recognition software on phones allows you to unlock your phone by looking at your face. No, the phone looks at my face and it unlocks my phone. If you were to grab my phone and look at my phone, it would not recognize you. Right? It wouldn't unlock my phone. You're my phone because it only recognizes me. That's partiality. Right? It recognizes only me. Right? That's, that's favoritism. It only sees me. It judges by my appearance or my eyes because they're beautiful, my chin, my lips. Face recognition software, the best modern context analogy for favoritism in a literal translation of the Bible, of favoritism or partiality. It accepts one person but not another based on appearance. So a more relatable way of asking this question that James is asking is, do faithful followers of Christ judge others by the way that they look? Do faithful followers of Jesus Christ judge others by the way that they look? And honestly, the simple answer is no. So you can just tone out the rest of the message today. Check out and go home now. Because I'm sure I'm not going to say anything else important. I'm kidding, Beth. Pay attention, don't fall asleep. (laughs) Because here's, here's the thing. Faith and favoritism don't mix. Faith and favoritism don't mix. This is point zero on your notes guide this morning. You get to write that one in on your own. You're lucky. The folks who get to pick this up later in the week, they don't get to know this. This is insider information. Why can't faith and favoritism mix? Why? It seems so natural to us. It's, it's like something we do automatically. They're just like me. I want to be around them. There's someone I aspire to. Mom always said, I'm going to be like my five closest friends, so I need to choose them carefully. Well, here's the thing. It has to do with, it truly really has to do with the way things are right now in our world and, and the way that they are meant to be and the way that God men, means them to be. You see, God has an intent for humankind, an um, intent for humanity, a way, a created way that they were supposed to be. And, and then there's an impact of humankind's sin, you know, the fall in Genesis and, and the impact that our brokenness has had on the world. And, and favoritism was not part of it because God doesn't show favoritism. And so to help illustrate this, I want to go all the way back to basics, back to the simplest um, scripture that I can find and think of that everyone knows because we say it at the football games on signs. Um, in John three sixteen because we, we memorize it in Sunday school, when we go to Sunday school, we, we say it, we, we proclaim it, and most people, everyone seems to know it, so this is how it goes. If I can find it, there it is. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. Now, here's what I want you to see this time, because every time we read this verse, we kind of it's like we tone it out, kind of like our last year series where we talk about uh, at Advent, where we see something and we hear a story so many times that we stop listening to it. I want you to see these words: for this is how God loved the world, not the individual, not the group. Not the attractive white man on the stage. Not the Elks Club. Not the Rotary. Not the United Methodist Church. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, him, no matter what race, nationality, what border they live behind, because God created the world and humankind, and people created borders. When God created the world, he didn't say, okay, that's the border of your country. You stay over there now. No. World. Universe. Not, okay, country. Nope. Wars. New line, new line. That, that's not in God's plan. World. Everyone. All. includes. God's love manifested in Christ was for everyone. And everyone means a diverse group of people. That means a bunch of weirdos, nut jobs, and crazy people like us. Notice I didn't say like them. Because I inherit two of those qualities I just said. So that means you are one of those qualities and you can choose yours. The body of Christ, the church, Redeemer Church, the St. John's campus, we are a diverse family of God. We are a diverse family of God. And that's our second point this morning. The church is meant to be a diverse family of God. And so James gives this illustration, this illustration that is pretty heavy. So all of the ushers and greeters who are here today is going to be tough on you, but I know it's okay. You, you, I, you're strong, people. be For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting. Another, another word for, for meeting could be your worship service. Dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or I'll sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So we have this scenario. Two characters, one rich and one poor, enter the worship center. The rich person comes in, and they march down the center aisle, flamboyantly showing their strutting their stuff. They got their bling on. They got their chains and their gold and their, maybe their big old hat, and their Peacock feather coming out. You no, rich folk. My cousin's a multimillionaire, and and he wears ripped up blue jeans and a T-shirt every day. So I don't know what rich folk like that wear. But in, in scripture, there's there's a references to the gold ring that the person wears, and so all the glitz and glam. And the usher responds by saying, Oh, come here and sit in front, the best seat in the house. I also see myself in the, like having the nosebleed section versus the box at the sporting event, having the best seat in the house. Then, at the same time, mind you, after worship has started, this is not like at before surf when at church, when everyone comes in and gets coffee and kind of fellowships. This is like, Oh, the sermon's already started. Someone came in intentionally to get attention. To cause a scene. At the same time, though, a homeless person comes into church, someone off the street. So we got glitz and glam, we got stains and stink, right? Same usher. Whoa. whoo! You need to sit back, man. You just whew. no, you, you need just, just go on and sit back. Favorites like this. It shows. It shows everyone. Your evil motivation. That's what James is saying. I was reading the book Under the Overpass a while ago. It's by um, Michael um, Yakonsky and his friend Sam. And what they do is they spend six months in six cities living as homeless folks. They, they are in college and they kind of drop out of college for a year. And they want to test their faith to see if they truly have faith in God. And, and they go for six months, and they live in different, these different big cities living on the streets with no money, and they panhandle, and, and they, they survive. They get through it. In one city, um, Mike has a blister on his foot that gets infected. And so they go, to church. they go to church every Sunday in a different church to see how they're received and everything. And they go to this church, and all he wants is to get someone to help him get to a clinic or something where he can get some antibiotics for his foot because he can't walk anymore on his foot, because it's all infected. And um, he went into the service, and the usher told him he had to leave And after the service, and that they don't do that kind of thing there, they don't help with that. He told him to leave. Another, um, in one of the other cities, they spent the night on this large church campus outside the door, um, and it was Friday night to Saturday. And on Saturday morning, he was they woke up on the, on the front steps, uh, or the back steps of the of the church, and um, they're all bundled up, and there was this big, all this noise. It was first thing in the morning, and they were unloading all these trucks and these catering things, and, and there's this smell of food, and they were starving. They're so hungry. And, and this, they were like, oh, there's so much food coming in and out with these caterers, and, and people setting up tents and chairs. And, and I was like, well, maybe we can just stay for a minute and see if we can get something to eat, because it's like a mile to get down to the main drag to start panhandling for food, because we don't have any money. And this, this guy comes up, you know, a nice t- shirt and tie from the church and says, you've got to leave. We're, we're having a party this morning, and we're serving breakfast, and you can't be here. And so they get kicked off the property, and they and they walk the mile to downtown, and, and they, they start panhandling. And and um, the next morning, it was Sunday, and they decide, oh, well, we've got to go to church. And they knew exactly where they wanted to go to church the next day. And so they go back to that church, and they sit through worship, and um, after church, that guy finds them and comes up to them bawling and apologizes because he's the director of outreach. It's interesting. It's kind of, it, because there is a motivation to our favoritism, there is a motivation to our favoritism, and that's what James is saying. He says that this, when you judge people like that, it's guided by these evil motivations. Because we all do play favoritism at, at one time or another. And it's not just the money. It's not about being rich or poor. It's, it's about comfort. It's about, I'm comfortable with this situation. I'm comfortable with the people I know, the people that are like me. And honestly, this is so far out of context for us. And we don't have a lot of billionaires walking through the door flaunting their money around. Nor do we have a lot of homeless people walking in um, that we're pushing into the corner. You know, I would like to say our ushers are trained better than that, too. And that we have awesome greeters and ushers here that would never do that. But I'm, I am a believer that, it, we, ha, that we at Redeemer are a, every member a greeter per church. That we all share that responsibility. So let me give you a a different context of this that is more like us here in St. John's. Let me set a, a realistic scenario for our present context. And this is why we took the few Bibles out from in front of you. So you can't throw them at me. A lifelong church member walked into the church late in the middle of the worship service. and made a scene as they walked into the worship center well after service had started. And at the same time, a first-time guest came into the church. If the ushers and greeters show favoritism to the lifelong church member and give them priority over the first-time guest and ignore them, well, then the evil motivations of your heart have been shown. What is our motivation as a church for our favoritism that we show? Who gets priority here? Because there's a reason behind our favoritism. There's always something beneath the surface. And that's what Jesus was explaining when he stood in front of the folks in the temple, and he said, So, why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. So, what is the underlying issue? Because the fourth point, or the third, is that we have to see the difference between. James goes on to say, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, God hasn't chosen the poor to be rich in this God um, God hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to choose to those who love him but you dishonor the poor isn't it the rich who oppose you and drag you into, into court aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ whose noble name you bear so God sees things a little differently than we do we already know this because James has already kind of said that, you know, and even like when we talk about trials, you know, like we see trials as a bad thing and testing as a bad thing, but God sees it as a way of proving who we are in his eyes. So God sees things a little bit differently. And God views, views material wealth and possessions a whole lot differently than we do. Or we see them as a success and failure in life, God sees them completely differently. You see, James says that the poor... going to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom but there's a condition this is a conditional clause statement that he gives that he says he promised to those who love him if you look at that text they're going to inherit the kingdom because he promised it to those who loved him you see so the blessing that james is talking about is the same that jesus is talking about in the in the sermon on the mount blessed are the poor He's not talking about all the poor in the world. He's talking about the poor who love Christ. See, we confuse that sometimes. We, we get this idea that being poor is a, is a... is like a mark of salvation. Like to be poor is to be spiritual. But that's not what James or Christ is saying because if being poor was... was a mark to be saved, then it's counterintuitive to everything that's taught in the scriptures about alleviating poverty in the world. Because if we were supposed to be poor in order to be to be saved, then why in the world would God and Christ tell us to help to alleviate poverty? Shouldn't we be trying to make everyone poor? It's kind of like that old clause that the theologians argued about. Well, if if you truly are innocent before a certain age, shouldn't we kill all children so we guarantee their salvation? It's the same kind of clause. Poverty is not a condition to salvation. God views poverty in this world completely differently because poverty gives us an opportunity to trust and rely on God even more. And that's why It helps because we depend on God more. When God talks about being rich and poor, most often in the Bible, he's referring to spiritual poverty and spiritual wealth because being rich in the world often leads to spiritual poverty and being poor in the world often leads to spiritual wealth. But it's not every time, all the time. It's kind of like a stereotype is never always true. Never always. I don't think that's proper grammar. But you understand what I'm saying. God's ways are not our ways. God's views on wealth are not the same as ours. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing that what the world considered important. So James moves to why favoritism and faith don't mix. So we're going to get to the capstone here and the main point, and that's the love law. Ooh, that sounds exciting. It is. This is the capstone. This is why it's actually important. So if you haven't been listening and you toned out the rest, This is a good time to come back in. Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law that is found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. I hope you've heard that before because it's important. It's good to do this, James says. Why? Well, it's in the Bible. Remember, things are not in the Bible because they're true. Things Things are not true because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're true. Things are not true because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're true. Jesus said that this is the greatest thing we can do. This is the second and final reference to Jesus in James. And so this is what happened in in Mark 12. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate, and he realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, what is the most important? And Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this. Love, O Israel. The Lord your God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally as important. So equally as important means balanced on the same scale, equally the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these, meaning both of them, these, the two. So why is love your neighbor as yourself so important? Why is it so important? The reason it's so important is because of its grounding in the Levitical law. You see, Jesus, when he came to the when he came to earth, he he did make a new covenant with God's people. There, there, there's a new covenant that we live into, but that was about our relationship with God. See, his purpose was not to get rid of the Old Testament, which is why, in fact, that the majority of this here, there we go, Matthew 1, oh, Matthew 3, close enough. The majority of this Bible is still bound together. Because Jesus' new covenant and all this stuff here is important, yes, but it's not to supersede this. His purpose was not to get rid of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus had said in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. See, the governing law of the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, those first five books, called the Israelites to love their neighbor. That's where it came from. Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's part of Levitical law. So why the connection? Well, because of Christ's teaching, and that teaching would be the golden rule in Matthew 7.12. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. And Jesus says, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Don't worry, we're getting there. This is all going to connect in the end, I promise. This is the essence of all of the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, if we summarize, if we summarize God's law, which is the Pentateuch, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the major prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So now we got 10, right? All right, I need more fingers. And the, and the minor prophets, that's 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Naaman, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's 22 books of the Old Testament if you took all of those together, combined all of that knowledge, and summarized it into one statement of what it means, not just means, but how we live it out in action, it would culminate into one statement of love your neighbor as yourself. So from that, we can make a conditional statement or two. Are you ready? This is the conditional statement. If, conditional statement is the if-then statement. If we love our neighbors as ourself, then we are upholding God's law. God's law being the Old Testament laws of Moses and the Pentateuch and the Old Testament prophets. Those 22 books. If we fail to love our neighbor as ourself, then we are not upholding God's law. Those 22 books of the Old Testament. Just generic. In summary, James 2.9. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are breaking, or you are guilty of breaking the law. How can favoritism be a sin? How can partiality and giving preference to others based on appearance mean that we are breaking God's law? Let me ask you. Are you truly loving your neighbor as yourself? And let me tell you how I define neighbor so you know the definition I'm using. Any person you come in contact with, the person next to you, the person you come across at any point in your life is your neighbor. Are you truly loving your neighbor as yourself if you give preferential treatment to some and not to others? Paul said this, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. So I ask you, who in your life do you give preference to first? And as a church, who gets our first choice? Who gets our preferential treatment? Because James asks, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be with us as we struggle with this, as we struggle, as we show favoritism to those that we enjoy being around, and as we push away those who make us uncomfortable. God, we ask that you would give us the grace that we need to reflect on our own lives, our lives as a church, our lives as family members, but most importantly, Lord, as lives as your children. Give us the strength that we need to love all that we come in contact with as you have loved us because we love because you loved us first. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. Amen.